Welcome to Trade Finance Talks, a podcast from Trade Finance Global. During this series, we'll be hearing from global experts, as well as learning about the latest trends, technology and insights in the world of international trade and receivables finance. Episode 46. I like to try to look at things from a kind of a macro level when thinking about questions like this. And so if we go back to 2007-8 in the global financial crisis, it's taken us effectively 10 years to come back out of that. There were anecdotal discussions about piles of documents being stuck in warehouses when everything went on lockdown and, and those documents couldn't be transferred through the banking system or through the courier systems. I'm Dipesh Patel, editor at Trade Finance Global. Banks remain fairly optimistic about the future of trade finance, according to ICC's recently published annual global survey on trade finance. In the words of John Denton, ICC Secretary General, the year 2020 has not unfolded as anyone would have anticipated. As partners of this survey, TFG today joined by Alexander Malaket, Chair of the Global Survey, joining us today from Toronto. We'll be dissecting the Global Survey, highlighting some of the key take-homes and discussing what this means for trade finance. Hello to you in Toronto. Welcome to Trade Finance Talks. Hello, Deepesh. Thank you very much for having me. Very pleased to be here with you and all of uh, your audience. Thank you. So let's get started. If we can do the famous 30-second elevator pitch. So who are you? Where are you from? And what do you do? I've been in the uh, trade finance business in some capacity rather now for about 30 years, initially briefly with a Canadian bank and then a New York-based consultancy. And then about 20 years ago, decided to uh, see what I could do on my own. I've been doing that ever since as a private consultant. I would say there are three pillars of activity, primarily international trade advisory, trade finance, supply chain finance, and then somewhat more recently, the uh, link between trade finance and international development. And around all that is all of the advocacy work, including the work with the ICC, the B20, G20, um, engagement with the WTO and, and related entities like that in the international policy space. That's me in a nutshell. I've had the opportunity to write a bit of a book on trade finance and supply chain finance uh, for a UK-based publisher a couple of years ago, which was good fun. Yeah, and otherwise we keep busy with uh, speaking engagements and uh, writing for the industry press and uh, having the privilege of uh, doing interviews like this one. Great, thank you. For sure, uh, a big name and an expert in trade finance. And actually, we talk about Alexander Malakat in, in lots of conversations, all good stuff, of course. So, Today, we're going to be talking about the ICC Global Trade Survey, which is now, I think, in its 11th year running. Can you talk to us a bit about the purpose behind this and also some of the methodology behind this week's survey? Yes, absolutely, Depeche. Thank you. So, look, we think that this survey and the content that comes with it is really a unique document in the marketplace. It's a unique report. I think we approach this, we, when I say we, the ICC and the contributors to the report, really approach this in a unique way, combining robust data collection and analytics, which for the last couple of years has been driven by our partnership with the Boston Consulting Group, who keep doing excellent work for us, both on the survey and on the trade register. We partner with TXF on the export finance piece. We have ongoing work that we do from a survey and analytics perspective with the Asian Development Bank and inputting and feeding into the uh, recurring trade finance gap analysis that we all are very familiar with. And so the uniqueness of this publication, I think, is really what stands it uh, apart from some of the other things that you might find. Very few actually 
take on trade finance and supply chain finance at this level of depth and granularity and with this collection of expert voices. From a methodology perspective, you know, it's basically a combination of uh, several surveys and then the analytics that go with that. We try to do more than just repeat the data in describing uh, the findings. We try to add a little bit of analytics and try to add a little bit of forward-looking commentary as well to highlight the implications. And in the past, what we've done too is, is highlight strategic as well as operational implications specifically. So we may come back to do that again in, in future editions. And then, uh, so, and then we go looking for external contributors who have an interesting story to tell or an interesting point of view to then supplement all of the data and the analytics component. Thank you. Very, very extensive in-depth process there. And, and I think some 346 banks from 85 countries were involved this year. So we often use the phrase TLDR, which stands for too long, didn't read. So it would be great to get a, a TLDR on this you know, 120 plus page survey. Can you summarize some of the key findings of the survey in a couple of minutes? What were the highlights? What's the view from the bank perspective? And what's changed since the previous year? Actually, Depeche, I'm slightly disinclined to do that only because if I do that, it will take away the motivation for people to do a thorough read of the report. I hadn't heard that expression before, and it's an interesting point. Um, we do need to cut to some of the key findings, and I think we do provide a bit of a summary in the, in the initial pages of the report. But the interesting thing about this is it's, it's actually, we mean it to be a practical tool for industry, for practitioners, for regulatory authorities, for policymakers that they can go back and refer to on an as-needed basis. We think the data remains relevant for quite some time. It doesn't go stale very quickly because of the nature of the data and the analysis. And we think it can actually serve as a kind of a living document that people can reference until the next survey comes out. So from that perspective, we don't necessarily look at it as a document that you sit down and read sort of back to front in one sitting, but more as a kind of a reference document. Having prefaced it this way, I think I would just highlight that the survey just continues to reflect the character of trade finance. We have very consistent themes that come out from these data and survey components around digitization, around uh, the growth of supply chain finance, the continuing relevance and importance of traditional trade finance, but also the recognition that we really need to do something about the paper and process intensivity of that traditional business, even as we take forward some of the lessons of hundreds of years, if not longer, of industry practice. Certainly, the questions around standards, the questions around consistency of practice across borders, all of those things are, are recurring elements that you'll find in the survey. One of the things that you pointed out in a side exchange, too, was that sustainability and sustainability issues have gotten significantly more focused this year, and we can touch on that in a moment. But certainly, issues like the SME finance challenge as well, particularly highlighted by the current COVID crisis that we're all fighting with. This is an element of the survey that is obviously new this year. We have tried to include some survey and data collection around COVID and its short-term impact, as we should have. Overarchingly, I think I would take this as part of a continuing, as you said, decade-long story of the business of financing trade. Thank you. And I think obviously for the first year, the supplementary COVID-19 survey was, was sent out to try and assess some of the real impacts of the pandemic. What's the sentiment now? And have you noticed a, a different response from regional, local and global banks? 
On this one, I would highlight a couple of things. As you know, Dipesh, there is an annual meeting of trade finance experts that is hosted very kindly by the World Trade Organization. Marco Boyan and Deputy Director General Yi this year hosted the event in Geneva just before the whole world went on lockdown. So what happened subsequent to that as COVID started to become serious, and I mean that not from a public health perspective, because obviously it was serious from day one, but when I say that, I mean from a commercial point of view, the WTO then hosted a couple of follow-up calls to do a bit of a pulse check on industry. Initially, being reported was that actually trade finance was reacting quite well as it normally does under crisis, was still relatively available. Industry practice was still being very well respected. You know, there was some discussion about force majeure and how it should or shouldn't be used. And we found that good faith trade has continued in a very robust manner, despite the very difficult circumstances created by COVID. We had uh, explored in the more recent checkpoints. And what I expect we're going to see systemically going forward now is when you start to see businesses that have been on lockdown for many months, and particularly SMEs that live and die on cash, and you start to see defaults and bankruptcies and protection applications, that's where I think you'll start to see a bit of a systemic hit. And that's going to start to impact trade financing, as well as the operational supply chains. So that's the one bit. And then the other piece on the, the COVID crisis is also to to think about specifically the impact that it has on supply chains and on SMEs. So there's been a lot of talk about reconfiguring supply chains, whether countries need to rethink the way they source PPE, for example, or whether the way they source agri-food and whether they need to recreate some sense of independence or self-sufficiency in the structure of their supply chains. So there's quite a bit of attention being put on those types of topics as well. You know, I even at some point heard a suggestion that it orders on the criminal to not have that assurance of access to certain products and certain goods, including medical equipment and, and agri-food. And so, you know, there'll be some, some serious rethinking of some of those things in the capitals. And then it'll be for the industry and the business to determine or to feed into that process one way or the other, whether it's realistic to do these massive reconfigurations of, of supply chains or whether what we need is, is more of a kind of risk mitigation approach to that whole thing. So I'll split this into a couple of themes and I don't want to cover this for several hours. And, and as you said, you know, people can read through the, the survey in much more detail. But starting off with the trade finance products offering, I think some 61% of banks were said they were planning to expand their offering whilst over half want to expand their market participation, which was the general optimism around the survey. What does this mean for the midterm future and why do you think this is so? So from my perspective, Dipesh, I like to try to look at things from a kind of a macro level when thinking about questions like this. And so if we go back to 2007-8 in the global financial crisis, it's taken us effectively 10 years to come back out of that to the point where trade was, again, what you might call an engine of economic growth and prosperity, meaning that uh, the pace of growth of trade was actually outpacing growth in, in terms of GDP globally, which it had done for 50 years before that global crisis. And so it was getting to the point where we paced ourselves again against GDP growth and we're starting to sort of surpass it a little bit and take that leading position. And so part of what you're seeing in the finance space is a reflection of that growth of trade getting back up to around that $20 trillion a year in merchandise trade flows number, um, looking at services trade that are probably around the $5, 6000000000000 trillion a year level right now and, and growing. And so clearly none of that happens, or let me put it another way, 
the majority of that requires some form of trade financing underneath it, whether it's the risk mitigation piece or the pure financing or even the supply chain techniques in order to take place. And so it's a very natural flow to see you know, trade growing and regaining its position and then that optimism around growing the business of trade financing. And then the second thing is that trade corridors and trade flows are in some cases reasonably established, but they don't stay completely static. Sometimes geopolitical issues enter into those, those considerations. Sometimes it's uh, cost sourcing questions. So, you know, there's been a lot of attention being placed to sourcing shifts from China to Vietnam and Cambodia and other parts of Asia. And so some of those things will also drive that enthusiasm and that desire to grow geographic footprints and to grow the product offering as well. No, thank you. And I think Asia Pacific was believed to be the demand area for trade finance growth. And I think it's been covered pretty extensively, but it is still that real growth hub, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, when we think about the way, one of the things that's been interesting to observe over the last 10 or 12 years, or maybe a bit longer, is the shift in the way we look at international trade, right? Historically, and particularly when you think about traditional trade products, we've had a a view that is very bilateral. It's been an Im- one importer and one exporter and potentially a broker somewhere in the equation. What we're doing now, which I think is much more strategic and much more thoughtful, is looking at trade from the perspective of global supply chains. And that means all of the ecosystem around a supply chain that might involve a large global buyer and many hundreds, if not multiple thousands of suppliers, plus all the service providers. So the entire ecosystem that pulses global trade. And so that view, uh, you, know, you think about supply chains being anchored in Asia from a supply perspective, many of the SMEs that are suppliers either directly into a supply chain or that supply integrators and aggregators that then put their product or their component into those global supply chains, a lot of that sourcing activity in a sense, that anchor activity is taking place in Asia, which also kind of links to that question you asked about uh, the center of gravity around trade finance. Just going into that in a bit more detail, there's, I guess, that geographical evolution, but then there's the actual evolution of the the underlying product itself. I think one of the areas of focus in, in the report was really around the increase in open account trade and supply chain finance areas, including payables finance. What's driving this? One view argues, and I, I tend to agree with it, that actually looking back again in roughly that same time frame of 10, 12, 15 years-ish, it's basically um, commercial practice. Uh, there's a point at which we started to see corporates saying, look, uh, dealing in letters of credit is complicated. There was a perception that it's expensive. That one I can easily debate, but, but let's just acknowledge it. And there was a choice then to say, let's let's just go ahead and deal in, on open account terms. And in that time frame, the global system was fairly liquidity rich. It was relatively easy to access financing when you look at it across a historical timeline. And the need for risk mitigation was perhaps a little bit less than it might have been at other points in time. And so the open account proposition was very attractive and has continued to become attractive. And so when you think about the textbook description of trade finance that says, look, you start with a letter of credit documentary product when you're dealing in a new relationship or you're dealing in a high risk market, and then you progress the product's to the less risk mitigated and less complex as the relationship builds trust or as, the, as you shift to less high risk markets, that logic was basically turned on its head when you find that you know, roughly 80%, depending on what numbers you quote, of trade today are done on open account terms. 
It's that context that has driven that shift to open account. There was a very serious discussion around 2005-06 about banks being disintermediated and being made irrelevant in the financing of trade because of that shift to open account. And so part of the response from industry was then to come up with these various, what we now call supply chain finance, uh, writ large as a kind of a category, products and solutions to address that open account space. And we're, we, we continue to see that being an area of high growth. And it's, uh, you know, arguably with all respect to traditional practitioners, the SWIFT data has shown us that traditional trade products underpin roughly 10% of trade flows. So maybe $1.8 to $2 trillion, something in that range. But that the open account supply chain finance space is, is where the growth and, and the density of activity is today. There's also a big divide between local and regional banks in the offering of supply chain finance platforms. Why is this divide a challenge and particularly alluding to the MSME trade finance gap here? That feels to me like a bit of a two-part question. And I'll say that if we make the assumption that regional and smaller banks are more likely to service MSME client segments, then I would say that's one logical link for that question. The other piece of it in terms of the banks being able to deploy these supply chain finance techniques, and again, I use the term very much in line with the supply chain finance techniques definition document that we published uh, 2016-ish, where it's an umbrella term and it covers nine or 10 specific techniques, including the tables finance one that you mentioned earlier. I think there are a couple of things. One is it's not inexpensive to develop and deploy the technology that enables a proper deployment of these techniques. The second thing that we need to talk about is also that it requires the technical competency to run that type of business. And one of the systemic issues that we wrestle with in the financing of international trade is that we are we have a kind of a generational, let's say, shift in the population of people that practice this business. So what we need is some, some young people, we need the next generation to come into this business to uh, start to develop competencies so that they can grow the offerings, not only in the large global banks, but in the regionals and the local banks. Now, um, the good news story that maybe doesn't come out as much in the survey, although it does somewhat, and it's pointed out as a bit of a a delta between globals and the the regionals and smaller banks, but, but the good news on this, for those of us who watch the industry, is that there are a number of regional institutions now and a couple of smaller banks actually taking a very serious look at how they advance in the supply chain finance space, whether they will do that through their own solutions, whether they'll partner with fintech, whether we'll start to see some insourcing slash outsourcing mechanisms develop as we did two decades ago in the the traditional space. But there is a growing interest in that, and partly because the the, the pull from the the industry and commercial practices is really motivating them. On that transition. The other area of evolution is really around digitization. And actually, it was quite a significant chunk of the survey. Some 77% of respondents included transitioning to digital when growing their trade finance businesses. Can you go into a bit more detail on what exactly banks are focusing on when it comes to digital trade? And has the pandemic accelerated this? We think that the pandemic has accelerated the motivation to look at this. I mean, you'll know better than I. I mean, there were anecdotal discussions discussions about piles of documents being stuck in warehouses when everything went on lockdown and and those documents couldn't be transferred through the banking system or through the courier systems. And so the banks had to figure out a way to keep the financing flowing into the system to ensure trade continued to progress here. And actually, the ICC has published a document, which I think is referenced in the report, and also there's a link to it, that actually describes to people what some of the leading global banks have done 
to, let's say, adjust their practices and adjust their internal policies to facilitate the financing of trade and the flow of trade in what I'll call a quasi-digital format. So they've done things like uh, loosen some of the requirements to see physical documentation, um, agreed to transact on the basis of digital data flows with the agreement the paper might follow later on. So there, there's a whole series of process and policy initiatives that have been taken to make sure that that type of financing continues to flow despite the challenges of the COVID lockdown. In the short term, I'd say the answer is yes, it has accelerated specific steps. What I'm very hopeful of is that we don't regress once we're on the other side of this tunnel here to say, okay, well, now that we've been able to resolve COVID in one way or another, we can then go back to the paper-intensive process. So hopefully we maintain that momentum and we maintain the motivation the imperative underneath all of that to progress to full digitization. One of the things that we are more and more conscious of, certainly at the ICC and certainly within the finance community, is that digitizing the finance part of the equation is only part of the problem. We have to look at digitizing trade holistically. And this is why also we're looking at the Digital Standards Initiative and other sort of collaborative initiatives to advance that on a very inclusive and strategic basis. Couldn't agree with you more. And I think that rapid adoption has to be approached very, very cautiously. And, and we can't make the mistake of sticking a, sticking a Band-Aid on the challenge. I think just to bring that to a close, and I think the TLDR is, is actually read the report, but use it as that benchmarking, that reference point, because there's a lot of data, a lot of information and, and insights. Do you have any final concluding points, Alexander, on, on the report? And I know we haven't discussed things like sustainability, financial inclusion, which, which are all heavily focused on in the report as well. Yes, absolutely, Depeche. And those would be the ones that I'd want to highlight. I mean, you pointed to the SME finance gap. It's extremely urgent and particularly now amplified under COVID. We at the ICC have also issued a call for governments to really think about consciously trade financing and access to trade financing as they consider the different support programs that they deploy to try to, to absorb the shock COVID. And we want to make sure that trade finance is on the radar among political leadership and in, uh, in policy circles to ensure that we have that uh, that available because we know what happens from 2008 when trade finance is not available and it, it really does amplify the economic problems here. On sustainability, you know, it's NESG, for example, it's now very much part of the discourse among investment management professionals, asset managers, and certainly in government procurement circles. So it's very much at the core of a number of conversations. If you, again, rise above the treetops a little bit and think about the UN Sustainable Development Goals, these are all things that are top of mind and should be for those of us who are involved in financing trade and thinking about trade flows and thinking about the impact they have on the environment, on uh, societal considerations, on governance issues. So all of that is absolutely correctly highlighted in the report, as is the work of our sustainability working group. And then again, the SME and the trade finance gap question. So I do think that we've highlighted some very relevant points for people to consider. The one thing that we haven't spent a lot of time on yet, and we will be doing that, is uh, we just you may be aware we launched a working group on uh, trade finance as an asset class to progress past efforts in that area. We haven't really put a lot of focus on it in the survey this time around or in the content related to the survey, but it's because the, the working group is just starting. And so once we have some substantive progress, that'll be another area that you'll see some attention focused on there as well. And I mean, you know, there's a whole raft of other activities that I want to also point to in terms of the B20, G20 advocacy work that we do. Uh, we continue at the ICC to leverage the unique position we have as an observer at the United Nations, 
I would be remiss if I didn't mention our successors in trade program and the contribution they made to the report this year. So speaking to this whole question of engaging the next generation, we're delighted to have had a very substantive contribution from them as well. So we really, I mean, you know, the digital trade roadmap that originated at ICC UK has gotten some very good visibility as well. Um, we've had an interesting piece that argues that the SME problem is actually not a finance problem, it's a data problem, and I would encourage you to have a look at that. There's a very interesting thesis in that piece as well. So I, I do think this is a data-rich, a robust, but also a content and analytical, analytics-rich uh, document. So the one thing I would leave you to consider or, or your listeners to consider is that we would be delighted to receive feedback from the market on this document, ways we can improve it, topics we can touch on that maybe we hadn't done, anything creative that we can add to the elements of the report to make it more useful and more practical for the market. We would be delighted to hear people's feedback on that. Thank you. Thank you very much, Alexandra. And as partners to the Global Trade Survey, we're happy to uh, field through comments to yourselves. And also thank you to the editorial committee of the survey as well. Great work. Alexander. thank you very much for joining us on Trade Finance Talks. Hopefully see you in person soon, but if not, talk soon. Thank you very much, Dipesh. Be well. And thank you again for your partnership. And I appreciate you acknowledging the editorial committee as well. They're extremely engaged and have been for the last number of years. And the quality of this report wouldn't be what it is without that group. So thank you for acknowledging that team. Thanks for listening to Trade Finance Talks. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts at tradefinanceglobal.com. 